Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington, and you can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in today, we are starting on day 43. Yes, and welcome Uh, If this is your first day, I'm so glad you're joining our podcast. One thing you should know is we like to take time to answer questions as much as we can week over week. Um, And really, it's about engagement. We would love for you to engage with us and throw us some questions that we can take time to answer. There's three ways that you can message us those questions. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question or a Bible pod question, which is one that we recently received. And I was like, oh, Bible pod, that's fun. Um, Or you can direct message us uh, on social media, either Facebook, as Evan had already mentioned, we're the Grove Church in Washington State, or you can follow us on Instagram. Our handle is the Grove CH, and you can also direct messages there uh, and send us those questions. There you be. All right. Well, we are wrapping up Exodus today. We're going to do a little, a little, a little hint of numbers, just a little bit. Yeah, like it's a little sidestep, little itty bitty section, and then we're going to start Leviticus. So yes, those are the big ones. My that we're favorite doing. book. No, I'm just kidding. Everyone loves Leviticus. Well, last year I'm struggling through it right now, just to be honest. Last year, listeners, if you were with us, you may remember that we did the Leviticus You Can Do It guide. So, <laughs> yeah, I uh, totally remember that. It's always like, yeah, we always talk about how every year when people say they're going to read through the Bible. You go strong in Genesis, you make it most of the way through Exodus, and then you get to Leviticus and it's a struggle. So hopefully it won't be as much of a struggle as we kind of walk through it. But first, we're going to talk about Exodus. So the final section of Exodus is the fulfillment of what we read last week. So remember last week, we're talking about here is exactly what the tabernacle is going to look like. Here's all the instructions for how to build it. This week, we see it actually get built. So and it's pretty cool. Yay. Uh, chapter 35 begins with Moses uh, begins with Moses once again repeating the importance of keeping the Sabbath. Uh, it is a day that is set aside to be holy to Yahweh is actually what he uses or holy unto the Lord. Um, this is followed with a section where the people bring forward offerings for the building of the tabernacle and skilled craftsmen volunteer for construction. Um, and so again, like, and I'll say this a few times throughout our podcast, because I think one of the mistakes that we re- that we make when we read, um, and I'm just going to say it, when we read the more boring parts of the Bible is- How we, dare I you? I know. Um, we don't allow ourselves to kind of be swept away with what's happening. So again, imagine here that the glory of the Lord is leading you through the wilderness and the audible voice of Yahweh has commanded Moses to, you're going to build this exactly. He has these instructions and you get to be the people who are responsible to this. When you are bringing your gold and your silver, and we'll talk about how much there was because there's a, I broke down the numbers into a, modern measurements and it's insane. Um, but that's your gold. That's your silver. That's your bronze is being used to build the tabernacle. If you're one of the craftsmen, you get to know that for forever, for, I mean, I guess not forever because the tabernacle is not around anymore, but for generations upon generations, um, the things that you built, the things that you contributed are going to be what is used to worship the Lord. Like this is a really cool moment for these people. And so we shouldn't just skip over that. Um, and so, yeah, there's a section where all the people of Israel bring forward in offerings what they can. And then those who are skilled laborers or skilled craftsmen, they volunteer to help with the construction. Uh, and then after that, it gets going. So then most, oh, I guess, Aaron, I need to repent for last week. I lied to you. Um, last week I said, uh, Bezalel was the son of her. He's actually the grandson of her. Uh, yeah, you're right. I remember, it's funny because I remember reading this. I was like, oh, Evan, Evan was wrong. That's but my bad. That's, I appreciate the honesty and he the, was, he the was, integrity, bro. I appreciate that. He was a relation of her, at least. So that's a good time. Descendant. Uh, yep. Descendant. Probably a better way to say it. I know. He's a relation. Anyway. All right. So Exodus 35, starting in verse 30, it says, Then Moses said to the people of Judah, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Stop and, for a second. It's the set of the people of Israel. What did I say? You said the people of Judah. Did I really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. I so, mean, technically they're included in that. Yeah, but this is all of the people, not just the tribe of the people. All the tribes so. right now. Yeah, we haven't had the schism yet. Uh, <laughs> so in verse 31, and he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and a Aho- I should really, I should have looked up how to pronounce it before. I'm going to go with Aholiab. 
Yeah. Aholiab? Sounds about right. Sure. The son of a guy of the tribe of Dan, <laughs> and he has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue or purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver or by any sort of workman or skilled designer. All right. We so, just offended some people that are about the accuracy of the Bible and you said some guy versus Ahis- the guy's name. So I'm going to go with Ahisamak. Sure. That's a good name. Ahisamak. Ahisamak. I like mock. I feel like mock sounds a little bit better, but Mac. Might well, someone be. pointed out to me that like in a lot of the Middle Eastern countries, this is completely off off the, the, a side topic here, but it's not like Iran, it's Iran and mm-hmm. like Pakistan and, you know, Afghanistan and Turkmenistan. And I was like, oh, so I'm trying to say those. I'm trying to, I'm trying to per- correctly pronounce, pronounce uh, names of countries. Much. I found out it's Qatar, not Qatar the other day. So yeah, isn't that weird? It's Qatar. Qatar is where they had the World Cup, but the correct pronunciation is Qatar. So well, they, how do you spell it? Q-A- is it a Q-A-T-A-R? Yeah, Q- oh, yeah. I called it Quater. Quater. There you go. It's a it's a good time. And I'm sorry, I'm American and last, I'm ignorant. Last fun fact: it's the Dominican Republic, but the other island is not pronounced Dominica; it's pronounced Dominica. So hmm. anyway, you learn some, you learn something new every day. But let's learn things new about the Bible. <laughs> so, I one thing I put in the notes is I think it's cool to see the Spirit of God empowering these men, not just for like miracles and prophecy Absolutely, or war, yeah. but it's like, because I think most of the time when it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon whoever it is, that's usually the context. It's like a miracle is about to happen, prophecy is about to go down, or like a, a warrior is going to go do something yeah. incredible. Um, this one is God is, the Spirit of the Lord is upon the men and they are skilled laborers and craftsmen. And yeah. that's kind of what's getting at. It's the creative side. Yeah. No, I love it. Um, in chapter 36, we get a detailed account of the building of the tabernacle. And it is clear from all these descriptions, the care that the people of Israel used in building the tabernacle. Yeah. So if, if there's one thing to take away from this, it is that everything has specific instructions and the craftsmen are taking incredible care with making sure that God's instructions are followed to the letter. So it's funny. It kind of makes me, th- I think I've mentioned this on a podcast before, but maybe it's been a few years, but one of my favorite quotes is from a movie called Chariots of Fire. I've brought it up before, but it's a movie about Eric Liddell, who was a Olympic athlete, but he was also uh, called to be a missionary. And he actually ends up going to China and he dies during World War II as a missionary uh, to that part of the world. Um, but there's a scene and I, I used to think it was an actual Eric Little quote. And then I, I found out years later that I was lied to by the pastor who shared that during a message. But you know, what are you going to do? We will do? not name said pastor. Still like you. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, but the quote is, it's his sister asking about, you know, like, well, why, how are you going to do, go do running when like you're supposed to be a missionary? And he says, I know God has called me to missions, um, but God also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And that's what I was thinking about as I was reading this is like, God made me a craftsman. God made me able to do yeah. this and carve wood and hammer out gold and weave together silk. And when I'm doing this, for him, I can feel his pleasure. So that's completely like just conjecture, but that's yeah. what I was, that's what was kind of in my head as I was. Well, but I think these. it's a really, um, it's a really interesting thought for sure, because sometimes I think we do things for our pleasure and, and it's not, and there's some overlap, right? But there's something about the joy of the Lord. There's something about fulfilling his call and his unique calling and creative uh, intent in my life, which is different than your life. Um, and, and finding, clarity on this is what the pleasure of God looks like as mm-hmm. I live out what he's called me to. It's like a father delighting in, in, in their child. You'll experience that soon. Uh, but even, but you even get glimpses of it. Like I know the recording of the podcast, right? That you've had the first ultrasound and uh, maybe not the it's, first. It's but, the, it's the first one where it looks like a baby, not a jelly bean. Yes. You start, you actually start seeing, I think I saw Ashley's post uh, about the baby sucking his thumb or yeah. her thumb or its thumb because we don't know what it is and you're going to wait till birth. Which, yeah, we're waiting. Which is awesome. Congratulations on that because I couldn't do it. <laughs> I, I did it once and I hated it. Um, but all of that to say, like there's something that you find a light, like you find so much joy in right. those moments as a, as a dad. Um, I can't speak for my wife, but uh, the parental part of it. She is, gets no joy from the children. Not at all. Oh, from No. Um, but I just think as a parent, you just have this this ability to comprehend in a small, small minuscule way, uh, the deep truth of that idea of um, God's God's enjoyment in in me living out my purpose, of yeah. me pursuing, of me stepping out in faith. Of like when Peter, this is whole side note, right? But when Peter stepped out of the boat, I, I, I'm I'm confident to say that God, there was a little bit of joy on Christ's face. Like you did it. I'm so proud of you. 
why'd you have a little faith? Like, I just think there's those moments of it for sure. Anyways, no total side note, but I think it's a really good, good connection point to some of these concepts, especially when it comes to these guys doing what God's called them to do. So. Right. No, that's a great, that's a great point. Uh, you're going to notice a theme here with some of the building materials that it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of repeating going on what? here. Just kidding. Uh, so the Ark of the Covenant is made up, uh, sorry, I should say beginning in chapter 37, I'm kind of just going through the list of all the things that happen. Uh, I just put, uh, Bezalel goes, goes ham and just starts making stuff. So uh, the Ark of the Covenant is made of acacia wood and is completely engulfed in gold. Um, so acacia wood, I would inc- look it up. Um, it's kind of cool. Acacia trees also look really cool. And you can kind of see like, oh yeah, these are definitely the trees that are in the area. Um, it's also really beautiful. Um, like mm. when you look at the wood after it's been treated and stuff, it's got this kind of like dark tone to it and like more like, like kind of like the, um, like a dark gray of the lines that are, that are weaving through. It's really cool. So anyway, it's kind of, it's fun to imagine that. And it, I also realize uh, you never think of these things as being wood because they're gold. Like you, oh, he, they're all overlaid and underlaid in gold, I don't know, inlaid, that's what it is, uh, in gold. Um, but you realize there's, it's a wooden shell that they're doing that with. So it's kind of cool there. Um, and then the Ark is also topped with two golden cherubim, which if, I mean, it, it basically anytime you look at the Ark of the Covenant, it kind of is the way that it's described because we get it, we get it described in detail. Yeah. So usually when it's in movies and stuff, it's, uh, it's correct there. I would say real quick, if you don't have a study Bible that has some of these pictures, oh yeah, then, then do your, do the due diligence of looking it up, Google it there. There are accurate as accurate as possible pictures and images of what these things look like. Um, it just brings another layer of life to it. It, it. And that's, I mean, even the tabernacle, when we get into the tabernacle conversation to see how it was set up, to see the the curtains and things like that, that are being built. I think it's, it just enhances our, our understanding of what's going on, especially in these books. I mean, as you dubbed it, some of the most boring books. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But it helps enhance some of that. So I think it's important to do that too. If no. you don't have a study Bible, you should at least Google it and look it up. No, that's a great point. Yeah. As I was researching this, I was looking at all of the pictures as I was writing the descriptions and stuff. So it's a very, it's very helpful. Um, and yeah, it's topped with two golden cherubim, which are kind of like what we imagine angels. Um, mm-hmm. And then they have wings covering their faces, facing towards the center of the ark. Uh, and then finally there's rings that are put into it. So that you can put poles through the rings and that's how it would be carried for, four of yep. the Levites would put it on their shoulder. You don't touch the ark. That'll I come it was up. the Merites that carried it. The Merite? Oh, I don't know. I didn't read I that get into right. that for my part. So uh, oh, it's coming. Oh, uh, so anyways, yeah, that comes up. That won't come up for like, I think a few months, but when it does come up, you'll know, you'll remember this moment listener and be like, Hey, you're not supposed to touch that. Uh, the next thing that's built. <laughs> no touchy. Yeah. No touchy. Uh, <laughs> the next thing that's built is the table, which will house the bread of the presence. Um, it is also made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold and similar to the arc rings again were constructed so that poles could be used to carry it from place to place. I guess this is important to like, sometimes we think of the temple. Remember, this is a portable temple for lack yeah. of a better way of saying it, but it's the tabernacle. Yep. So it is meant to be torn down and then re-erected yep. wherever they're going. Yep. It's like a big tent. So yeah, And that's why I think go back to look it up. If you haven't seen a picture of what the tabernacle looks like from the wilderness, do it. And Tabernacle of Moses works too, but just look it up because you can see it and look at it, examine it because you'll see, oh, that's what it looks like. So. Right. Uh, after this, we get the lampstand and this is hammered out of one piece of gold. We talked about this. We talked about this last week, but I, I don't know for me, I don't know anything about metalworking at all. So for me, that just sounds really impressive. Like, well, you just like hammered it out of one piece, but that is what they did. Um, it had seven trays and I just put like, think of a menorah, right? Like Hanukkah. Think of that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what it is. It's just, I mean, it's, it's the one, it's like yeah. the big one. So, but there you go. Um, the altar of incense is the next thing that's built and it takes us back. So we're, we're back away from gold and we're with a good old acacia wood with a gold overlay. Uh, just like the ark and the table, the altar of incense has poles made to carry it. And we are told that Belazil makes the anointing oil, but the perfumer makes the incense. So there you go. Uh, after this, we get the altar of the burnt offering, which was made out of acacia wood and overlaid with, you guessed it, bronze. <laughs> Got, Wait, gotcha. Uh, yeah, so these, we get into the bronze things now. Uh, this one does get rings to carry it as well. So some of the things are overlaid in bronze. Uh, speaking of things that are made out of bronze, the bronze basin is made of bronze. It's probably because they can handle a higher degree of heat. I don't know enough about it to know. I guess, it, yeah, because it's smelted, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's an alloy. Yeah, so the altar of burnt offering, if you put gold on the burnt offering, it's going to melt the gold if it gets too hot. Oh, I didn't even think about that. That's a good point. Yeah. 
Because bronze is copper and tin, right? Yeah. Makes sure. Sense. I don't know. It's a... See, this is where you are the walk, walking encyclopedia and I'm like the practical application guy. Well, this one I was doing, I, 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 uh, I've been really fascinated with the Bronze Age collapse recently. Oh. And so, because it's... The, <laughs> some of the randomest things okay, no, so the, you're going like... It's it's spurts. It's it's man. I'm really into this right now. Hey, I'm really into this right now. So the, it's interesting because the Bronze Age collapse essentially coincides with Israel taking hold in the kingdom, right? So the period of the judges is taking place during the Bronze Age collapse, and the Bronze oh. Age collapse is like the big moment in ancient history where all of the empires that had power either cease to exist, or in the case of like Egypt and Assyria. Um, they shrink down and they're way, and they never reach, I shouldn't say never, Egypt never gets to the same level of power that it was. Assyria come, mm-hmm. kind of comes back and then falls again. But it's kind of like, it's. Uh, I would compare it to the fall of the Roman Empire is kind of the next moment in history that has that big of a impact on everyone around. And then I think it also makes sense as to why Israel is able to prosper because all of the great empires of the Bronze Age are waning. And so I think that kind of just also just shows God's providence of- that's the, like, this is the moment he chooses to establish a really tiny kingdom that worships him because it's the moment where all of the empires are kind of at their, um, at their weakest. So anyway, that's, that has nothing to do with this, but that's why, that's why I know what bronze is made of because I was, I was looking into it. Um, and then the court of the tabernacle is made with bronze pillars and fine linen. So that's the outer court of the tabernacle there. Um, at the, at the, at, after this, the tail end of chapter 38, gives us a list of materials used for the project. So this is where I thought was really interesting. Uh, I, I looked up, because uh, I have a study Bible, and so it, it didn't give me the modern measurements, which was really annoying. It just said a cubit is this and a, uh, so you had a to talent is this. Yeah, so I had to do the math. So I guess, listener, take this with a grain of salt because I'm famously not great at math, but I double-checked it, so I think this is correct. Um, a little over one ton of gold was used for the construction of the tabernacle, over 750 pounds of silver and over 5,000 pounds of bronze is what was used for this. So really cool there. Uh, in chapter 39, we get a description of the priestly garments. And so here's the, these are the uniforms of the priests. Um, a few highlights, they are made from the most expensive dyes available. So it's talking about blue and mm-hmm. purple. I should have written down the third one, but I don't remember. Um, purple especially, remember... I shouldn't say remember. It's not like was it red. I think it was red. Um, I shouldn't say remember because it's not like we bring this up all the time. But purple (laughs) is the purple is the color of royalty, and the reason it's the color of royalty in the ancient world is because it was the most expensive dye to make. Um, And so, if you had purple clothing, it means that you were fabulously wealthy because you could afford the. And I forgot what plant it is that was used to make it, but it was exceptionally rare. So there you go. Uh, And then the other thing is the ephod. Uh, which is the square piece that goes over the chest was made of gold and had onyx stones, which onyx is the black. So pretty cool there. Is well, it? no, I don't remember. Oh, I, was, okay. I didn't see. No uh, worries. I got to try. What I was going to say again, I, I, not to not to jump on a bandwagon, so to speak. But again, look it up in a study Bible. It's it's pretty remarkable because like you don't you don't understand what an ephod is. You don't understand what the um, yeah we don't wear those today. What's the placard that goes the gold placard? What do they call that? Um, but that goes over the turban that he puts on. Like it's it is a remarkable thing of of the elaborateness of of the priestly garments and what Aaron's supposed to wear. So anyways, yeah. no, absolutely. again, visual, adds visual. Yeah, and when it helps you, like when you read the narrative portions of like what's happening in the tabernacle, you can kind of picture what the people looked like because you actually know like, hey, this is exactly what they're wearing. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, and then finally, in chapter 40, we get the climax of the second half of Exodus. So like, you know, Exodus is almost two separate stories. Scarlet, so red. Scarlet, okay, there you go. Uh, so it's blue, violet, and scarlet. Um, there's kind of, in, in the first half of Exodus, the whole story is about Moses going back to the people. And the climax of that is really the parting of the Red Sea um, and God saving them from the Egyptians. And then mm-hmm. after that, we get into the wandering in the wilderness where we get the law and the 10 commandments and the golden calf and all these things. And I would say um, the final climax of that story is this, it's the tabernacle finally being built, uh, yeah. being put up for the first time. And then we'll see what, we'll see what happens here. 
So they do this on the first day of the first month and Moses anoints everything inside. Um, and so I put, as you're reading this passage, think about how amazing this must have been to the Israelites that it's, it's completed. Um, it's exactly the way that God wanted it to be. And Moses is preparing it for the actual worship of Yahweh, the way it's supposed to be done. Um, and I believe it's done exactly one year after the start of the Exodus, if I remember right. Don't quote me on that. That's something I should have written down, but what are you going to do? Uh, and then when Moses was finished, this is what happened. And these are also the last verses of Exodus. So this is Exodus chapter 40, starting in verse 34. Then the cloud t- covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys. So... I mean, I just, I love that. And yeah. I, feel, I feel like it's such a faith building thing that like you, you can visibly see the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. Um, this will happen again, famously when the temple is dedicated, that's the way that God kind of shows his approval yeah, for the, the first build. temple. Yeah. The first, yeah. The temple of Solomon, not, not the second temple famously. Um, but the glory of the Lord fills that as well. And I also just love this idea that God's deciding when the people move. And obviously that's what yeah. happened at Sinai, right? He's like, you know what? Go take a walk. Uh, I'm not going to be with you on this on this one. You guys just go to this place. Um, but now it's the when the glory of the Lord leaves the tabernacle and moves up, the people follow it to wherever God leads them, and then the glory of the Lord once again fills the tabernacle. So really cool. Love yeah. that passage. Uh, well, before we jump into numbers, we do want to take a second to remind you to, you know, hey, if you haven't let us left us a five-star review yet, particularly on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, uh, we would love for you to do that. It really does just help get the podcast out there to more people. And if you leave a written review, uh, we will read it on the air because, you know, that's just, give you a shout out. Yeah. That's just the kind of guys that we are. We like to give shout outs to our beloved listeners. Uh, but without further ado, Aaron, what's going on in the book of numbers? Yeah. So the numbers, and like we said at the beginning of the podcast, it is just a quick sidestep uh, before we jump into Leviticus. Um, and and before we started recording, Evan and I were kind of hashing out, how does this portion of numbers fit into the overarching uh, reading that we're doing. Uh, you are right to say it's been a, a, at the end of Exodus, it's about a year uh, from the time they started the journey uh, from Egypt to where they're at currently with Mount Sinai and the tabernacle being established. Um, and so I just want to give us a quick intro into the book of Numbers because it is kind of interesting to consider uh, that Numbers and Leviticus uh, both take place. So Numbers, like the where we're starting with Numbers, uh, it starts about a month from the end of Exodus. So uh, where Numbers picks up in the very beginning, it's about a month later, uh, but not chapter nine, where we're going to jump into chapter nine is kind of the continuation for it's, it's, it's kind of like in the years past where we've done, where we've seen Chronicles as kind of like a sidebar that jumps in and rehashes some things that we've read already in first Kings or first Samuel. Uh, that's kind of what's happening here with numbers. Well, I think one of the important things too, to, rem- to remember when we're reading a lot of ancient literature is not all of it is narratively structured. Yes. And what I mean by that Which is, I hate that. Right. So it's it's frustrating for us because most of the time when we read something, it's written chronologically. So it's written, this happens, and then we go forward. Um, with a lot of ancient literature, it's written thematically. Yeah. And so they'll go back in time. And you'll see this with the Gospels as well, mm-hmm. where some of the things in the Gospels go back and forth because it's talking about things that Jesus did and arranging them by theme and not necessarily, this is the exact order that all of those things happen. Yeah. And so you just kind of have to, you have to be willing to kind of accept that. Yeah. Uh, that, Hold it loosely. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing too is, I, and I even read this in a book I started reading today, um, just the idea of chapters and verses, w- w- the way that it was referred to when it comes to scripture is it's almost uh, subtly controlling uh, of how we read scripture because it's it's chronological, verse one, verse two, verse three, verse four. So there's times where it gives us, especially in Western culture, because we don't understand the Middle Eastern culture, um, it gives us this, this tension without realizing like, this is how it has to be, this is the order, and that's not true. And so I think it's important to understand that too. So we'll jump into numbers. Uh, like I said, it takes place about a, a month after the close of the book of Exodus. Um, and then numbers specifically will cover the remaining 39 years of the wilderness journey. Uh, we'll, we'll do a much bigger introduction to the book of numbers when we get there, because that's coming up in a couple weeks. Um, but numbers 9, 15 to 23, I'm going to start by reading this because this is literally, it's almost uh, just a 
repetition of what you literally just read. Uh, and I, I wanted to read the numbers passage and then offer a few thoughts. It says this in numbers chapter five, verses 15 to 23 chapter nine. That's what I said. Not said really. Five. I said five <laughs> chapter nine, verse fifth, verses 15 to 23. Um, it says this on the day that the tabernacle was set up again, this is just remembering Exodus. The cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, and it appeared like fire above the tabernacle from evening until morning. So you've got both the, Oh, I'll just stop that for a second. Let me finish reading. It remained the way that, that way continuously. The cloud would cover it, appearing like fire at night. Whenever the cloud was lifted up above the tent, the Israelites would set out at the place where the cloud stopped. There, the Israelites camped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out and the Lord's command, they camped. As the long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, we just read that, but it is repetitive. Even when the cloud stayed over the tabernacle many days, the Israelites carried out the Lord's requirement and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud remained over the tabernacle only a few days. They would camp at the Lord's command and set out at the Lord's command. I'll be honest with you. When I read that, I was like, God, that's so inconvenient. <laughs> I have to set this thing up and tear it down all in a matter of a few days. Come on, man. Yeah, you think packing it in like the churches who like meet at schools and stuff. You think oh, that's a, you think that's annoying. <laughs> well, and, it's this. funny. I didn't even think about that. I actually thought about the camping trip I went on with my family recently. Uh, we were there for like a week plus or a week, and I was like, this is a lot of work for for a week. I can imagine like this massive amount of work. Not only do the the Israelites have to set up their tents, but the Levites set up the tabernacle. So, anyways, mm-hmm. uh, in only a few days. Uh, verse 21 says, sometimes the cloud remained only from evening until morning, which is even more inconvenient. Uh, and then when the cloud lifted in the morning, they would set out. Or if it remained a day and a night, they moved out whenever the cloud lifted. Uh, whether it was two days, a month, two days, a month or longer, the Israelites camped. It did not set out as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle. But when it was lifted, they set out uh, and they camped at the Lord's command and they set out the Lord's command. So long story short, this, this, is, this is now the tabernacle has been set up. And the glory of the Lord is the one directing when to set up, when to move, when to stay, and all those different things. It's this incredible picture. Um, and and it's, remember, it's it's literally the same cloud that is leading them out of the wilderness. When they were led to the Red Sea, when they were led by day and night, it was the cl- pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. It's also the thing that was set in between the Egyptians and God's people as they were crossing the Red Sea. Uh, so it's the same. It's the same picture of of what of what they've experienced. It just stops and descending upon the tent of meeting. Um, like I said already in this podcast, look at a rendering on Google to see what the tabernacle look, tabernacle look like. You'll see uh, the smaller tent of meeting, which is the holy of holies, which held the ark of the covenant. That's where God would descend and show up, and that's where Moses, who remember he would have a tent of meeting set up outside of the t- the the camp of the Israelite people, which is where he would go to meet God. Uh, now it's the tabernacle, which is the central piece. All of all of the tents at this point were set up around the tabernacle. The tabernacle always faced it east, always faced east when it was set up, uh, and so that's that's the picture of what's happening. And so the, the tabern or the tabernacle is being filled and covered by God's presence with cloud or fire. Um, and I, I'll be honest with you, it would be a massively intimidating sight. If I, yeah, if not, not only just being led in the wilderness, but in this moment where the cloud is like descending and staying and sitting, it would be a massively intimidating sight. But that's what God's people were interacting with. Well, and hopefully that they remember that massively intimidating sight next time they want to, you know, make a golden calf, let's say, <laughs> and worship. Like maybe the- Take that. Maybe the fire of the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle all night <laughs> kind of kind of puts them astray of that a little bit. But who knows? Maybe. You know, the Israelites are silly. No, no promises. Um, and so we, we jump in the very beginning, or the very first reading of Numbers is 9, 15 to 23. Um, and then after that, after this, we're this week, we're going to read, but we're going to go backwards. We're actually going to start in chapter seven and work our way back to nine uh, verses one through 14. Uh, and so I'm going to break those down for us. In chapter seven, we see uh, the leaders of the 12 tribes leading the way and giving an offering to help provide the materials and the resources needed to build the tabernacle. Um, so it's kind of a reflective piece. Oh no, sorry, not build the tabernacle to donate the items, not just to dedicate the tabernacle and operate the tabernacle, but also to move the tabernacle. Uh, and it takes a, it takes a little, about 12 days to, for the tribes to give. Um, and part of, because part of the requirement that God told Moses that he relayed to the people is one, one member of each tribe each day is supposed to give uh, an offering. 
And so the offering consists of the first layer uh, is that 12 oxen and six carts were given. Uh, and it would, in essence, it was one cart in, for two tribes and then an oxen for each tribe. Um, and these oxen and carts that were donated would be the things that would carry the tabernacle when it was time to move. Um, and so then Moses hands them over to the Levite tribe. He gives two carts to Gershon uh, and four oxen. And then the Merorites, four carts and eight oxen. Sorry, I was wrong. It's the Kohathites uh, that weren't given any oxen because they were the ones that are required to carry the holy objects. So these are the, the Ark of the Covenant, the things that had the poles, the rings that poles were put into. These were what was meant to be carried on the shoulders of God's people and that specifically the Kohathites, which is the son of Levi, uh, a tribe within a tribe, so to speak. Um, and so we see that first layer of giving to, uh, to f- fund, I guess, to resource the mobility of the tabernacle um, because it was never meant to stay in one spot. They were on a journey, remember, for 40 years through the wilderness before coming back to the promised land. Um, then in numbers, then, then the 12 tribes, uh, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to briefly cover this because if you, if you were anything like me, it took me about eight tribes in to realize it was the same gift, uh, being given by every tribe member. So that was fun. Um, it says the 12 tribes, they gave offerings, uh, and, and, and it wasn't, and I don't have an answer for this cause I, and maybe I should have taken more time to figure it out. But when the, the tribes are giving, giving the offering, uh, my assumption would have, would have been it starts in the birth order, right? But that's not true at all. Um, the order of the tribes giving, it goes Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Reuben, Reuben, Simeon, Gad, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Ash, and Naphtali. Um, r- removed from the list of, of, of tribes because remember that they were not, um, Joseph didn't have a tribe because his, his inheritance as a member was, was taken over by Ephraim and Manasseh because Joseph's dad adopted, in essence, took Ephraim and Manasseh as his own. Levi was pulled out of the tribes because they don't inherit land or territory. They inherit spaces of land to help keep God's people central in worship to him. Uh, so they served the tabernacle in the wilderness and also out through the cities uh, once they conquered the promised land. Yeah, the inheritance of the Levites was... The priesthood. Yes. Specifically. So, so that's the order that was given. So every tribe, that was the order it was given. And this is what they gave. They gave one silver dish, one silver basin, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering. One gold bowl full of incense. They gave one young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering. They gave one male goat for a sin offering. And then they gave two bulls, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs a year old for the fellowship sacrifice. That's what every tribe over the course of 12 days brought before Moses to donate to the tabernacle as part of the dedication of the tabernacle of cleansing and consecration. Uh, but that was, that's what chapter seven is, is covering is all of donations. So it gets repetitive, bear with it because I think there's a value to this that I'll hit in my application. Um, chapter eight deals with the lightning of the menorah in the tabernacle and the consecration of the Levites to consecrate them for the service of the tabernacle. Um, and I thought this was interesting too. Like every man is called from the Levite tribe to serve uh, in some capacity the tabernacle from uh, starting at the age 25 until the age 50. So for 25 years they serve and then at 50 they retire. And it says they no longer are, are required to serve. They can be helpful and they can help in different things, but they're not called to serve and lead certain capacities and oversee. And so like for me, it's, as I think about it, it's like there's something about the prime of life. Right. Some of these guys have to carry <laughs> these things on their shoulders. Um, and some of these guys are the ones who tear down the tabernacle and put it all uh, away and fold it up in certain ways. And as you remember, because the, the tabernacle was set for mobility, remember how they built it, they constructed it. They had it not just woven together, but they had it woven together strategically so it would be set up and be torn down, not quickly, but in a timely manner to be efficient. Well, it's interesting to think too, like just back in this in this time period, your work and what you what your life was about was very often determined by whatever your father did, right? So today we don't really have that. It's a little bit, obviously, but mm-hmm. like it's not, um, it's not nearly as mandated, I suppose, as the way to do it. So it's interesting because I'm, uh, I'm a pastor, and my dad was a pastor, and so was my grandpa, my great grandpa. So it kind of like runs in the family in, in that, um, in that sense. But in another sense, right? Like growing up the idea was not like, like my dad was not preparing me for ministry growing up. Cause it was like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. Um, and so eventually like me and my brother this is what we chose, but 
it wasn't this sense of like from birth, we're being prepped to do this. Um, what's interesting with the Levites is from birth, you're being prepped to be um, a priest and even like more specialty, right? Like, and it's funny because I never really thought about the fact that like, yeah, the different clans in the tribe of Levi, they have different jobs. <laughs> and there's like the one clan whose job is like you're moving the holy objects. And so I feel like there's – um. It's, it would just be interesting to me, and I think there's something beautiful about the fact of, of growing up, knowing that this is what God has called you to do, and preparing for it your whole life, and then spending, like you said, the prime of your life doing what it is that God would call you to do. So, I don't know. I just thought that was a really, uh, I don't know, an, an interesting aside, I guess, is the way that I would put it. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so I just think it's, a, it's yeah. Chapter nine, nine. Chapter nine. <laughs> we read verses one through 14, which will be the last of numbers, which then brings us back full circle to where we started in the book of numbers. Uh, chapter nine, verses one through 14 deals with the second Passover, uh, which marks at this point would be a year uh, since they've been in the wilderness. Right. Because the first Passover was, remember, the exit of Egypt from uh, the Exodus beginning from Egypt. Uh, which then when Moses commands them to then consecrate themselves, observe the Passover, he gives direction about uh, even a foreigner living among them or uh, what it looks like, maybe someone who's been outcast because of uncleanliness or whatever that looks like. Moses details the second Passover, and this would mark the completion of the first year uh, on this wilderness journey. And I, and I want to say this, and I think it's important to remember, setting up the tabernacle, making all this stuff didn't happen overnight. <laughs> We got to remember the time it took, the right. process. So I, I, I even caught myself thinking through the lens of like fast food mind or movie script mind where you can fast forward, but it took a t- it took time to establish the thing. So God's people are at Mount Sinai for a year before they're ready to start going in through the wilderness journey more specifically as God would lead them. God brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai where they rebelled against him. Moses broke the Ten Commandments, had to make new, t- all of this stuff. This is all happening within a year of the Exodus beginning, uh, Exodus out of Egypt, not the book of Exodus, but the journey out of Egypt into the wilderness. And then we'll find as we jump into um, the coming weeks into the rest and the actual full book of Numbers, that covers the next 39 years. Leviticus, and not to steal thunder, because I know you're getting ready to jump into the book of Leviticus here, but it also covers the first year and gives more details about sacrificial system and the the holiness of God and what it's requiring. Uh, But that's where we're at. Like we're coming to a point where it's not just full circle. We've seen the first year in glimpses, but we're also seeing God establish for himself this people and being able to walk and live among them and, and be present in their, in their amongst them, I guess, present in their, in their community. I, that's a weird way to say it. God with us, you might say. Yeah. So anyways, that, so that's where we'll finish up. Uh, the reading of numbers before we jump into Leviticus this week, uh, kind of full circle because remember, fifteen to twenty-three is what we read at the very beginning of the week. Yeah, well, I like that you said that it's, it's God making this into His people because that's kind of what Leviticus is about. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's the law. Um, as yeah, as far as genre goes, that is what Leviticus is. It's a list of. I mean, there's some narrative in there, but it's very much very a, little. <laughs> a, it's very much a list of commandments, the way that things are going to be done. Um, and so, a couple things, I guess, as as we read the book. I would say keep two things in mind, and this this helps me as I read Leviticus. Um, number one, and this is kind of what we talked about earlier, put yourself into the lives of the people here who are hearing this. What is it like for Yahweh Elohim, the creator of the universe, the God who has brought you out of Egypt, what would it be like for him to give his law to this nomadic tribe of mm-hmm. nobodies? Um, and that sounds really flippant because obviously today Israel occupies like a massive part in the imagination of the of the modern Christian. Um, but remember, like if again, if you open up a history book and you did not care one bit about the history of religion, which obviously those things are kind of inseparable. Um, but if you were just talking about the power structures of ancient of the ancient Near East, Israel is is isn't they're nobodies, right? They're a nomadic tribe yeah. that eventually carves out a small kingdom that eventually gets conquered by greater empires. Um, and yet God picks this small tribe to uh, or this this group of nomads to be his people and to give his law. So I think that's really incredible. And sometimes we just kind of glance over that. Um, the second thing I would keep in mind is all throughout the Psalms and all throughout so much of the Old Testament, they thank God specifically for the law. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically of, uh, and on his law, I meditate day and night. Sometimes when we read the Psalms, we th- we bring that into our modern 
terms as Bible, which in one sense I think is helpful to do because we should, you know, meditate on the Bible and think and thank God for the whole of the Bible. But keep in mind that when David is writing this, he doesn't have the whole Bible. Like the, obviously there's no New Testament, but most of the Old Testament isn't there either. Most of the prophets haven't even been born yet. So when David is talking and thanking God for his word, he is specifically thanking God for his law. And so think through as you're reading this, why is this something that David is so thankful for? Why is this something that the people of Israel are so thankful for? Because for us, it can just seem like a list of rules. Um, but to the Israelites, it was the voice of God. And we should re- recognize it as such because that is the correct way to look at this. Um, one last thing about Leviticus. We talked about this last year, but I just think it's interesting. Uh, the Hebrew name for the book is way cooler than the Greek name. Uh, <laughs> so in the Septuagint, and that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament used at the time of Christ. So remember, by the time Jesus is around, Greek is kind of the the lingua franca of the day. Um or what that means is like the most common language spoken by the people. So like today, English is the lingua franca of the world. Uh, back then, it w- or most of the world. Um, back then, it was Greek, the Hellenization, which, sorry, that, I'm using words like that. <laughs> the, the, the Greekifying, I guess, is the way you could say Hellenization of the world had happened. Uh, and so the Old Testament was translated into Greek. That was called the Septuagint. And the title of the book there was the Leviticon or Leviticus, which is where we get that. And that means concerning the Levites. Uh, which, you know, okay. I mean, I guess, that's, I guess that's true. A lot of it's concerning the Levites. Clarity is good. Uh, the Hebrew title is the Weikra, and it means, and he called, or in other words, Yahweh called, uh, which is the first line of the book. And that's way cooler. That's way, <laughs> the Weikra is a better, way better name than Leviticus. Um, I think, you know, maybe one day we'll change the name back, but who knows. So the book seems to pick up. Um, kind of right where Exodus left off. Obviously, there's some passage of time here, uh, but the tabernacle has been dedicated. The glory of the Lord has filled it. Uh, and now God is going to give his rules on what sacrifices are going to look like. So we're going to kind of go over all of these different sacrifices. And, and Aaron kind of brought up, right, we, um, that certain animals were brought for a burnt offering or a grain offering or a peace offering. And so Leviticus gives us the details of, hey, when you do these, here's exactly how it goes down. So the burnt offering, uh, these involve an entire animal being killed. And I don't know why I put an entire animal being killed. Of course, like this involves just, just the leg of the animal. This killed. involves part of an animal being killed. Uh, I think what I meant to put was this involves an animal being killed and the entire uh, carcass being burned on the altar. Uh, this would also uh, be the most expensive offering for the average person, right? You would be bringing in like, like a bull, for instance, that's a, that is a huge sacrifice. And I don't mean that in the sense of like killing it. I mean, that in the sense of like for your personal wealth, um, a healthy male cow in its prime without blemish is probably the most valuable thing that you own and you're sacrificing that to the Lord. So uh, yeah, I think sometimes, cause we don't measure wealth that way anymore. Yeah. Um, so think of it that way. Like think of your most prized possession. This is what you're giving to the Lord right now. So it's really powerful. Um, and I would say even more so monetarily. Because we don't, we think in in ancient history, it wasn't so much money as much as it was possession. Right. And and even so, I, I, I say that carefully because I think the analogy can can break down a bit when we think, what's my most what's my most prized possession? No, no, no. What where's the most like your four hundred one k? Like yeah, there's like what, what what's your most wealthy asset? That's the picture. Is what so I, I want to say that clearly. Uh, because I, I don't want the analogy to break down because that, I mean, that is a bit, I mean, I'm nodding my head like, yeah, that's true. It's so true. Like that bull is, is, is right. a, that's a lot of, a lot of moolah. Today. That's a great point. Yeah. Cause my, my most valuable possession would be like maybe my wedding ring or something like that. But my most valuable possession would be like a, our car. Yeah. You your most I mean? prized possession would be your wedding ring. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's a good, that's good clarity. Uh, the next offering is a grain offering. This is usually a flour, salt, frankincense, or oil. Um, only a portion of it was burned and the rest of it was being used to feed the priests. Um, usually with the poor of Israel, this is the kind of offering that they would be giving. After this, we get a peace offering. Uh, these are a reminder of the covenant between Yahweh and his people. It's a reminder of the peace between them. This, these ones also involve animals. After this, we get a sin offering. Uh, these deal when these, these are for when the covenant between Yahweh and an Israelite had been broken. Um, obviously, when that happens, it's broken by the Israelite. Yahweh does not break his covenant. Uh, and so these offerings are the most common ones. When we, when we think of offerings, right, when we think of sacrifice, we usually think of, yeah, I sinned, and so I need to sacrifice this thing to make atonement for that. That's what these are, right? Mm-hmm. So that's when we think of offerings and sacrifices is the one that most often comes to mind. 
Um, and then, sorry, I lost my place. There we go. Uh, and they were made to show remorse for sin. Uh, and then the final one we get is a guilt offering. We don't really understand too much about what the difference between this and the sin offering is. So, But it seems like these are for sins that are even more extreme than the ones that require a sin offering. So it seems like there's an extra, basically extra wicked things that people can do. Um, and you make a guilt offering for that. So kind of interesting there. Uh, starting in verse six or chapter six, verse eight, we get a section concerning how the priests were commanded to handle the offerings. And so there is an, there is an intense and different ritual that is important. And it was a way to both worship God and to demonstrate his holiness. Um, I, I guess I wanted to camp on this for just a second. I think sometimes we we dismiss ritual as modern mm. Christians yeah. um, because it's like, oh, it's, it's just you know, it's just going to be white noise or who cares, whatever it is. Um, but ritual is an important part of worship in the Bible, and it can't all be that, right? Because then yeah. it just has become like I'm just repeating the same words and stuff like that. Um, but God clearly lays out this is exactly how I want this to be done, and taking the time to do it the exact same way, taking the time to make sure that everything ex- is exactly the way that that Yahweh has commanded it to be. That is a form of worship because yes. it's showing the care that you're taking in there. So these are, um, yeah, it, it's it's a, it's important ritual and and keeping them exactly the same is, is a way of worshiping the Lord in the midst of that. Yeah. And I would even go as far as saying it's the, it's the excellence with which we respond to God's excellence. Mm-hmm. Like we, we, when God sets a standard, we, I mean, let's translate it to modern day. I mean, this might be a little bit too loose of a, of a, of a connection point, but the idea of, of gathering on a Sunday morning to worship, we can come in a little loosey goosey without the understanding. It's, it's my son. I'm, without the understanding that I, we're singing corporately to reflect on God's sovereignty, God's provision, God's generosity, God's grace, whatever the words of the song are articulating we're singing and reflecting on that truth. We're not just singing songs and clapping our hands to have a concert, right? There is there is a certain part of the ritual that's important. Mm-hmm. Teaching my son right now prayer. When I'm praying for him at the end of the night, he he has a tendency sometimes to goof off. And so I'm trying to like, no, no, no. But we're talking to God. Right. We need to respect his time and his desire to meet with us by being attentive and focused. And, and I'm not trying to curb his enthusiasm for life, but trying to train him to understand that there's a certain level of, of reverence that we've got to walk in. Um, and it can become legalistic when we don't maintain the right heart and mind in f- for it, if that makes sense. Right. Because it's not hard to keep ritual, right? It's not hard to keep standards and processes and protocols. And it sometimes can feel like a cold method. But the reality of that is so important, and I and I, I love that you bring it up, is because of the the intention is not to become legalistic and rigid, but it's beca- it's to become humble and aware of I'm standing before a holy God. I am creating the space a holy God is going to descend upon. I need to honor what He asks to the nth degree, to the best of my ability to be excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's the right response and intention to live in. Well, it is intention too, right? Because think about the prophets. What do they get after the Israelites so often for? Is yeah, you're doing the rituals, but then you're going out and committing adultery. And you know what I mean? So it's, it's I, I, I intentionally say ritual is a part of worship. It's definitely not the only thing. Yes, way. yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, like God, God is looking at the heart as we'll see. Um, and I think that's, the, and that's the tension I like to bring up and I like to think is important to remember is, we can get really caught up on routine and what we do and what's comfortable for us. Half of these things weren't comfortable, <laughs> right? They were uncomfortable. And so I think it's, it's that tension to, to get outside of our comfort zone, to be in awe and to respond to the, to the awe of God anyways. Yep. No, absolutely. So uh, chapter eight is the last chapter that we're going to be reading today. Um, but it begins a section of narrative that we will pick up uh, next week as well. Hey, narrative. Hey, woo. Uh, it begins with Moses uh, being commanded by God to consecrate Aaron and his sons. Uh, and this is done by p- placing the priestly garments on the men, uh, anointing the whole of the tabernacle. And then Moses offers a bull as a sin offering. And this is done. So Moses kills the bull and offers it as Aaron and his sons have their hands on the bull. Um, after this, the same thing is done with a ram and is offered as a burnt offering. Uh, and then another ram is sacrificed as an offering of ordination. So, and I put some interesting stuff happens here. So this is the last passage that we'll read today. Um, 
It says, and then he presented the other ram, this is Moses, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. And he presented Aaron's sons, then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ear, on their thumbs of the right hand, and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. And then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat on the right thigh. And he took and he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. This is one of the few yeah, this is one of the few times that we get reference to oh the wave offering. It doesn't I don't I don't think I, Major League Baseball, the wave that no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, Aaron knows I hate the wave. <laughs> Um, and then Moses took them from their hands and burnt them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the, uh, took the breast and waved it for the wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his son's garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his son's and his son's garments with him. And that's where we're going to leave it off this week. So next week, we'll read a little bit more about what happens with Aaron and his sons. But to my Western Americanized mind, that's just weird. It's wacky. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but it's significant. Like in the presence of God's people, there's so much to be understood um, that's going on in this moment that I think is really, it's, it's, it's really significant and really important too. So, and it's a God, it's God establishing and giving the authority and the example being modeled by the leadership of God's people is a big deal. So. Yep, absolutely. Well, that does wrap it up for our Bible reading this week, but we do have a couple more sections going on. So first off, Aaron, what did we learn today? Man, I, I really like the, uh, the the portion of numbers, and I kind of referenced and alluded to an application piece today, but just in, in chapter seven, I mean, it's repet- repetitious. Um, it's... It feels a little redundant to keep reading, uh, but to be able to step back and just take a moment and realize um, what the what the tribes of Israel are offering—that they're all coming and bringing the same exact thing—and I and I think it's valuable because uh, there's a couple things here. I think uh, it highlights the fact that every tribe participated in this ritual in the ritual celebrations, and they had an equal role in its religious practices. And, and it wasn't one tribe had more wealth, so they gave more, so they would, because I mean, me and my siblings, I've got three siblings, an older sister, younger sister, younger brother. We'll joke around all the time. I remember my childhood that I was mom's favorite or my older, like my mom would even play into it, like, oh, Aaron, you're my favorite. And then my brother would be like, well, what about me? Andrew, you're my favorite. Like th- there's always this jockeying for position um, at times, subtly, subconsciously, and even intentionally. But I think in the chapter seven, the beauty of the the equal role of God's people, of the tribes of Israel, whether they, because so, not all the tribes were the same size. They didn't have the same amount of people. Some had larger amounts of people, some had lesser amounts of people, but everyone gave the same measure, the same equal amount to the offering. And and I just think that's important because uh, it just realized, and this is a this is a line that I'm stealing out of my, my study Bible, uh, but the idea like a people in communion with God were ready to worship together and experience his abiding, abiding presence together. Um, and I just, I just love the fact that as God's people, we're not called to bring a gift like someone else. We're called to bring what God is asking us to, whether it's our gifts, our talents, our resources, whatever that looks like, but we have equal, equal partnership in the kingdom. And, and I love the picture of God establishing his people, God establishing the tabernacle and using his people. And it didn't show favoritism, which is what the patriarchs didn't do well. Uh, he doesn't show favoritism and he didn't in that moment, but he set a standard that everybody was to, was called to live to and act accordingly to. Uh, and so I just thought that the, the idea of equality and unity, that we're all called to carry, uh, that we're all called to carry the cross. I mean, we're all called to, to follow Jesus's footsteps and no one's going to like, oh, I'm supposed to call, follow Jesus's footsteps faster. No, like we're all called to follow the same steps in the same manner. And I love in the Old Testament, we see this picture even as God is establishing his people 
that everybody has an equal role. Every tribe played an equal role to provide and give so that God's a tabernacle not could just not only just be established, but the operations of such could also be provided for too. So I just love that picture of the unity of the equality of the role and the call that it's spread out across every, every person with no preference or priority or favoritism and that we're called to live according to that. So I think even today, same, the same picture can apply. We're all called uh, to lay our lives down, to believe that Christ is who he says he is, that he died, he rose again, and is now seated at the, the right hand of the Father, has sent the Holy Spirit, and we're, we're called to follow his call, his life. Uh, and there's no, you're better at it than I am, or you have a better calling. No, we're all called to follow. And I think that that's the, the equality that exists. So I just love that piece to it. Yeah, love that. Uh, my application is honestly just, and we, we talked about it a little bit as well. Um, I just think God's holiness is real. Yeah. And it's to be taken seriously. And I think uh, if there's one major theme of Leviticus and the, the basically the law and the parts of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy um, that are talking about the way that everything is going to be constructed, or the way that sacrifices need to go down or the, the rules to follow, um, it's to recognize that God is holy. Yeah. He is different. Um and he is and he is perfect in a way that is incredibly difficult and I would say even impossible for us to fully understand. Um, and so when God is making the people of Israel his people in these moments, it makes sense that they are going to be set apart by what they do. Because yeah. um, it's funny because you say, you know, like as a in the modern West, like some of that stuff is really wacky. Some of this was also wacky to the people around them, right? Like for it's, sure. It's not just that it's uh it, it's different from us thousands of years later. Even the people who were their contemporaries, some of the things that they did were like, okay, wait, what is this even about? But it's because God is intentionally setting apart his people because he also wants to communicate that he himself is set apart, um, not just from creation, but even from the other from the other gods, right? And whether those are demonic forces or whether those are uh, just, you know, things that people made up, God is wanting to communicate that like, no, I am, I am different. I am other. And, and part of that is the, the holiness laws that we see in this part of the Bible. Yeah. So good. Well, before we wrap up, we did have a question come in. All right. So uh, this came in, he started off with some really kind words. So thank you for that, beloved listener. Uh, And the question goes, uh, I have a question for the podcast. God has gotten angry at mankind and especially in Genesis. In Genesis, God is so unhappy with mankind's sinful ways that he that he regrets our creation and has a flood that wipes out most of mankind. My question is, since God is all-knowing, why did he get so mad at us for things that we did when he already knew that they were going to happen? Uh, I understand that if I knew something bad was going to happen ahead of time and then it happened, I would still be saddened even though I saw it coming, but God is not a human and is far greater than I. I understand uh, that the podcast doesn't like to speak for God. That is true. Yes, (laughs) very, very true. uh, But can you offer me some insight on this, please? Okay. So with, with that qualifier, I'll just simply say, th- these are our thoughts of processing out the answer to this question. There's no way of saying this is what God would say. Yeah. I feel like, well, like <laughs> the questions that we get in, they fall into two categories, right? It's either like, oh yeah, there's an answer to this and it's in the Bible and and here, you know, here's the answer. Yeah. And then the other, the other half of the questions are like, that's a really interesting thing to think about. Let's talk about it. Um, yeah. So as we process through, obviously this is not... This is not the word of God. Um, as 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 the listener says, we are not looking to speak for God. In this, this is moment. the words of Aaron and Evan. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but a, a couple of thoughts that I had. Um, a, like it's understandably hard to get into God's head because, I, I, as you said, he's he's not a human, yeah. and as we just talked about, he is he is holy, he is separate, he is other. Um, so, it it we're never going to be able to fully understand things from God's perspective, and so here's just a couple ideas. Um, God knows so much more about the heart of man than we do. It's so true. Um, so it would make sense to me that his anger and sadness are actually greater than ours because God does not only see the outward action clearly, he also sees the heart. That's heavy. And, right. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Like that, that's such a good point. And it's so heavy. Because even to when think like, about. Yeah. Like when someone does something evil, um, I see an evil action. And like, I guess like to bring it to like the extreme, right. With um, like talking about like Hitler and the Holocaust and those things like that, like you see just oppressive evil and, and the, the mm-hmm. death and the destruction that, that was rained down onto, um, onto millions of people. I think God experiences that at an even deeper point of sadness because he also sees the inner corruption of his creation. Yeah. And he sees, but whether it's, you know, Hitler, the man, or also just like all of the other people who are responsible for it. 
um, I think I, I so to me it makes sense that God would be more deeply grieved by seeing the inner corruption of people that he loves and people that he created and then seeing them do wicked things, even knowing that that was what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, I think the way that God experiences time also is different from us. Um, and this is kind of open-handed, but I, I, um, I think it's a good way of thinking about it is like God exists outside of time. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I don't think it's, sometimes we think of the way that God looks at time is like, it's someone who, um, who know he's with us in time right now, but he knows what's going to happen in the future. Um, and I actually tend to think of it more as God sees all time at once. Yeah. And then we like, even like when we die, we're being removed from, from time in that sense. And we're being brought, brought to God. So in I presence with God. Yeah. Right. So I don't think it's this thing where like um, someone's born and God's and God's experiencing that, and then also saying, "Oh, but I know this is going to happen." And I think God has seen the entirety of our lives yeah. already. You know what I mean? So, and that and that's a weird, super wacky thing to try and wrap our heads around. And again, that's also very open handed. Yeah. Well, and I always have the picture just in that same thought for a second is like consider a movie, two and a half hours, whatever, an hour and a half long movie, and it's almost like the the entire film is played out before the individual. So you're stepped outside of the movie mm -hmm. and you see all of the scenes and everything playing, but you know, the end of it. So go to uh, the infamous Seahawks game, right? That, that the, pa the Packers game, let's go to the Packers Seahawks you. playoff game. Thank you. Right. That's, I wasn't going to talk about the throw, bro. Oh, okay. I was going to talk about like the infamous game where it's like, you see the first half in live setting. You're like, this is ridiculous. We lost. Like, there's no way we're coming back from this. Second half plays out, the, the way the Seahawks came back and beat the Packers, it was a playoff game, wasn't it? It was the NFC Championship game. That was the last game of the season. They didn't, you know, the Super Bowl doesn't count that year. So, <laughs> oh, that, oh, I didn't, uh, see, I'm not a Seahawks fan, so I don't pay. Anyways, all that to say, like, knowing the outcome of that game, you engage with every scene differently, but you can still feel the emotion of every moment because you watched it live, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this picture, like for me, as I've always tried to understand, like, okay, God, you're outside of time and space. You see the eternal, like the, the timeline of history from the very beginning, the alpha, the omega, from the very beginning to the very end. And you see it all play out and you can be engaged with every scene, every moment, every person, but you also have aware at your disposal, the end. Um, and then the other side of it too, is like factor now in the gospel to it. The way that God now sees certain circumstances, situations is through the blood of Christ, is with God, Christ's death and resurrection and covering. So all of those things he sees and interacts with, it's still a very small analogy to even comprehend the vastness, but it is this, for me, that's always been the picture that I've been able to put in mind is that he sees the beginning, the end, he can be present in every moment and every circumstance, every situation, but he also is aware of and able to, to look ahead and see what's coming because he's outside of it. Mm -hmm. And so he's able to see it with a better perspective and a better picture. But that again, it, it fails in comparison along that same line of thought. Right. But. And the other, the other thought I had just too was just because the, the analogy was used, if I knew someone, if I knew something bad was going to happen with someone ahead of time, um, or if I knew someone was going to wrong me, let's say ahead of time, they still did it, that would still grieve me. Um, I think also God has a much greater right to expect love from his creation than we do from others. And so what I mean by that is like, if I, even if I knew like, mm -hmm. oh, like Aaron's going to do something like, wicked to me. Um, I and, would never. Thank you. <laughs> and then you do it. And like, obviously I'd be saddened. Um, but I have much less of a right to expect you to treat me well um, than hmm. God does to expect yeah. his creation um, to worship him and follow him. And so I think there's also a deeper level of grief and anger that happens there because yeah. God rightfully um, expects more than, than we would. So. Yeah, for sure. Those are kind of my thoughts. It's a fun. I love those questions. They're fun. Yeah. Uh, I just, yeah, we always try to put the, forward the disclaimer that these aren't like the correct answers. This is kind of just what we're yeah. thinking about, but, yeah. but there you go. Hopefully that helps. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I would even say, um, there's a couple things here too, that, that I think stand out as well is like, because God can see the eternal, the, the beginning, the end, it gives him a better perspective. Um, I would say that helps a little bit. <sighs> I, I would also say, going back to your point about he he has a greater sense of anger and sadness than ours. Um, and again, I compare everything to glimpses that we get to have from like from a father's heart. It's it's someone grieving the loss of a loved one, a father losing losing a child, having to bury a child, having to to do those things. I've never had to navigate that, but there's a certain level of of grief that we can have a glimpse of because. God watches that happen with his creation all the time. 
And, and so on one hand, I, I, I think there is this deep level of grief, but I also would s- suggest, and again, this is totally me processing. Um, and, and anybody on the podcast knows this, like, I don't really read these questions ahead of time. I kind of want to process them in the moment. Um, but I, the, the tension that I feel is um, God's wrath is oftentimes poured out on his people because of sin. The motive for wrath is not, I mean, the book of Revelation is a, a book revealing the, the final judgment and the final wrath of God being poured out because of sin and those who choose to be sinful and stay and reject his, his salvation and reject his deliverance from the power of sin. So on one hand, like when it comes to the, to, to the flood, because that was what the example was asked about, he corrects our creation as, and has a flood that wipes out most of mankind. Since God knew that was going to happen, God, you got to also look in that perspective. God also provided a way out. God still is working to redeem humanity, even in the midst of evil. He's still working. He still has a plan in mind. And he also shows great restraint by not intervening in those moments. Mm-hmm. He's given, and we talked about this, I think, in, the, in a recent podcast about the love of God. Maybe it was a different environment, but the love of God is so extravagant that free will is what's necessary for the full expression of God's intended creation. Um, and so he's got, he allows space for rebellion. He allows space for evil. I think it was talked about last week. He allows space for that. And it shows great power and great restraint because if, I mean, Jesus did on the cross, but if, if he wanted to, he could, with the, the snap of his fingers, a blink of his eyes, a word spoken from his mouth, completely make all of his robots and say, I love you no matter what. He can totally reveal himself. Right. Yeah. Um, but he, he shows this deep engagement with his creation and he knows his love is so powerful. His truth is so powerful that if we would take hold of it, it would tra- radically transform the way we live our lives. Um, and God, God, from the very beginning of creation, in the very beginning of the Bible, we see he has a, a method and a plan in mind to redeem humanity because of the existence of evil and sin. Um, and so while on one hand, we will never fully understand, and I don't even know if we're going to understand when we get to heaven. I would like to think so. Yeah, because, who knows? <laughs> but I don't even know because God, I mean, God withheld certain things in the garden of Eden. He let them into everything they needed to know, but he didn't know everything. Um, so I think all that to say, like it's at the end of the day, we're trusting in his sovereignty and the fact that he is outside of our comprehension. And I do appreciate that. Uh, we're even the acknowledgement, like he's not human. I'm human. I'm limited and I'm finite, but um, it's, it's definitely a challenge of God. I don't understand this, but I'm going to trust that you're good and that you're working out your plan according to your purposes. Um, and, and you're, you're unhappy with the sin that so easily entangles that you have a method on purpose. So it's hard because I, I don't know if we can really answer the question specifically, but those are the processes and thought processes that I give and I have some. Yeah, no, it makes, a, makes a ton of sense. Well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, as a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There is a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And with all that being said, thank you so much for listening. Have a great week.